Hello and welcome to the Small World Podcast, the podcast where you are the topic of discussion. I'm your sole host today, Chris Long, and joining me in just a little bit, we'll have Matthew Griffin, author of the 2016 novel Hyde. Matthew Griffin is an award-winning author and creative writing teacher at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. A native of Greensboro, North Carolina, Griffin went on to graduate from Wake Forest University before earning his MFA in creative writing from the Iowa Writers Workshop, where he was a teaching writing fellow. Griffin also worked as assistant to the director of Highland Research and Education Center. His debut novel, Hyde, was published on February 16, 2016. Griffin, in multiple sources, has cited the relationship between both sets of his grandparents as the predominant influence for his story. Hyde is the story of a homosexual couple named Wendell and Frank who meet at the end of World War II. When Frank returns from the war, the two connect. As a homosexual couple in the first half of the 20th century, their love can be dangerous, which is why the pair live in recluse, hiding in the North Carolina mountains. However, the homophonic title has a double meaning. Hyde also refers to Wendell's career as a taxidermist, where he often uses the hide of animals. Cutting nearly all ties with the rest of the world, they make a home for themselves on the outskirts of town, a string of beloved dogs for company. The book's bio explains their dynamic thoroughly, saying, Wendell cooks, Frank cares for the yard, and together they enjoy the vicarious drama of courtroom TV. Things take a turn when Frank's health in old age begins to slip. As Frank's physical strength and his memory deteriorate, the two of them must fully confront the sacrifices they've made for each other and the impending loss of life that they've built. Hyde is the story of caretaking, of growing old, of grief, of isolation, and of loving someone sacrificially. Hyde won the Crook's Corner Book Prize in 2017 and was shortlisted for the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction at the 29th Lambda Literary Awards. Griffin was also awarded an ALA Stonewall Honor Book and an Amazon Best Book of the Month Honor, where Hyde can still be found as an editor's pick for Best Literature and Fiction. Along with his accomplishments from Hyde, Griffin's writing has also appeared in The Guardian, Granta, and Electric Literature. Griffin lives with his husband in New Orleans, Louisiana, where he can be found in a classroom inspiring a new generation of writers. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hello and welcome to the Small World Podcast, the podcast where you are the topic of conversation. And this week with me, I have Matthew Griffin. We are so excited to have you on, Mr. Griffin. I appreciate you joining us so much. Um, Just as a little icebreaker, I know you're a North Carolina guy. You're from the state, from the area. So did you, did your family uh, travel much when you were younger, go to vacations? My family, we did go on vacation every year, but we almost never left North Carolina. We would always go to Ocean Isle Beach, which is one of the last beaches you can hit before you cross the border into South Carolina. And so that's really was our vacation spot all when I was a kid. And actually, even now, we still just go to Ocean Isle every summer. We did once or twice substitute a trip to the mountains instead of going to the beach. But then, too, we were staying in North Carolina. We uh, would stay at Lake Hiawassee, uh, which is very, very close to the tip of the state in the mountains. Yeah, I was going to my follow up question to that was going to be, are you more of a beach or a mountains kind of person? Yeah, that's a tough question. I lived in East Tennessee for about five years, and so I do love the mountains a lot. I think for vacation, I am more of a beach man. 
Um, just because I like being at the beach and knowing that the only thing I have to do is just go out and be on the beach all day. Whereas I feel like when you're in the mountains, you maybe have to plan things out a little bit in order to stay entertained. Although I suppose most of the time you can also just stay on the side of the lake the way you can at the beach. But I think it's somehow it's just easier to go and spend an afternoon on, on the beach. Whereas in the mountains, I feel like I have to plan hikes and things like Mm -hmm. that. Gotcha. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I would consider myself more of a mountain person personally, but I totally get what you mean. You kind of have to find ways to stay entertained. Yeah, but I do. (laughs) I also love an escape to the mountains, getting a cabin, being in the woods in the mountains. There's really like nothing more beautiful than that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we'll jump into what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about your debut novel, Hyde, which was published in 2016. Uh, The first question I have prepared for you In an interview with the North Carolina Literary Review, you mentioned that you grew up very close with your grandparents. Can you give us some more detail into what that upbringing was like and how your grandparents influenced you? Yeah, so I would say, um, I mean, both emotionally and geographically, I was close to both sets of my grandparents. However, my mom's parents actually lived across the street from us when I was growing up. Um, and I mean, even even um, through when I was in college, they lived there until, until both of them died, actually. And so in that sense, I was extremely close to my mom's parents because they were always there. And so if my we we never had babysitters when I was a kid because my grandparents were just always across the street. And if my parents had to go do something, my grandparents would take care of us. And so I spent a lot of time over at their house when I was a kid. And also, of course, they would pop over all the time. My grandma especially loved to just like come over at, around dinner time, like knock on the door, come in for a little bit. And so I spent just a lot of time around them when I was young. And then my dad's parents lived in Lexington, which is, I grew up in Greensboro and Lexington's only 30 to 45 minutes away. And so we would go have lunch with my dad's parents every other Sunday when I was a kid. And my grandmother was an incredible cook and loved making an enormous lunch for everyone. And so every other Sunday we would go there, have lunch and just sit around, hang out for the rest of the afternoon. Um, And so I have very vivid memories of when I was young, like when I was a really little kid going out and playing basketball after lunch with my, my brother and my cousins. And then as we got older, eating a lot and then like falling asleep in the living room while the adults were talking because we were also full of food. And so I I spent a lot of time with both sets of grandparents. So I know that you've mentioned that they've been a big inspiration uh, kind of in general, but then also a little bit specifically for the main characters, Frank and Wendell. Did you, are there any particular grandparents that, okay, this was a direct inspiration for Frank or this was a direct inspiration for Wendell, any of the mannerisms or anything? Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of like very tiny details um, went into to both of those characters from my grandparents. And in a lot of ways, I sort of thought of Wendell as being a combination of my grandmothers, and then Frank as being a combination of my grandfathers. Um, for example, I was just talking about the fact that my grandma, grandmother on my dad's side loved to cook. And that's something that mm-hmm. Wendell does a ton in the book is that he cooks all their meals. And in 
fact, the um, one of the the things that that comes up a couple times in the novel is the the yeast rolls that Wendell is making, um, and those are very directly the yeast rolls that my grandmother made. Down to the fact that she would always complain about the fact that they weren't coming out correctly, and then always they were incredible, um, which is one of the things that happens <laughs> in the book is that Wendell's always griping about how they're not good, and then Frank thinks they're great. Um, and so that definitely was something that came from my grandmother. I think also. My mom's mother was a very, I mean, both of them were, they were very particular people who like things being done in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and, and so there weren't necessarily, I'm trying to think of if there were sort of like direct mannerisms that came out of that, but I think just sort of like in general, um, Wendell's desire for things to like be done a particular way, the way he wants it, um, came from, especially my mom's mom. Um, there's also actually the part in the novel where um, Wendell goes out and cuts all of Frank's plants down. Um, he's doing it then, of course, because he's worried about Frank overexerting himself. And that didn't actually happen. Um, none of my grandmothers ever did that. But I do have a very vivid memory, just in terms of my grandmother wanting things to be done in a very particular way. At one point, my grandmother thought that we needed to trim our butterfly bushes in front of the house and no one had done it. We were all, you know, my parents were both school teachers. They had, my brother and I were like in school, everyone was busy. And so they weren't really worried about the bushes out front. And I remember we came home one night and caught my grandmother in the act of secretly trimming the bushes for (laughs) us. Um, And so I think that too, it was in a lot of ways, like I was, thinking about that in that moment when Wendell is cutting all of Frank's plants down. And then Frank is, I think, directly related to to my grandfather's in a number of ways. My dad's dad experienced dementia at the end of his life. And the kind of dementia that he experienced is very, very directly what I sort of used for Frank's dementia in the book. And that it wasn't Alzheimer's. He still knew who he was for the most part, and he still knew who people were. But he would also just kind of like invent or what seemed to be invented invented memories. I'm sure they had some kind of relation to something that he remembered. Um, but he had a tendency to sort of like make up memories and also play with words a lot and take words apart um, in ways that really drove my grandmother's crazy. And so that's definitely something that I used in the novel. And I think also to Frank's... Um, just imposing physical presence, like he's really tall, My was based very directly on my mom's dad. Gotcha. Yeah, you kind of see, after you say that, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, Frank is kind of the more masculine of the pair, and Wendell's the more at-home feminine of the pair. So having those kind of comparisons, that does definitely make a lot of sense. Yeah, I wanted to follow so- up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say certainly, too, they're like in in sort of like the broader inspiration for the novel. Part of it was especially watching my um, maternal grandmother try to take care of my grandfather as he was suffering from dementia and feeling really mm-hmm. frustrated by that. And so just sort of like your mention of the right, the more domestic nature and caretaker role that Wendell plays is also very directly, I think, inspired by what I saw my grandmother going through trying to take care of my grandfather. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on the point about dementia. Uh, so you talked about the fabricated memories and the Frank imagining this daughter that he has is kind of a pretty pivotal role for, or a pivotal moment for Wendell as he's experiencing and discovering, okay, this is the life that I've kind of kept this man from. 
Can you talk about just the process of writing that and how that kind of developed? Yeah, that was definitely not something that I had originally planned on when I was writing the book. I mean, a lot of things that happened were things that I didn't originally plan on, and I just sort of stumbled upon them, and they evolved as I was writing. And so I think part of my the the sort of development of that part of the novel was... I knew that the I, I knew that sort of the experience of watching a person you love like lose their memory and sort of invent memories of things that didn't happen was extremely painful. Is always extremely painful for anyone who has a, a, a relative undergoing dementia. And I had seen how painful and how frustrating it was for my grandmother. And so I, I was partially just thinking about that experience of how um, difficult and frustrating it is to, to, to go through that with a loved one. And then, because also sort of separately in the, in the novel, I'm dealing with what it cost Frank and Wendell in order to live together safely throughout the latter half of the 20th century, when largely it wasn't safe for them to live together. Um, and and I, I think I just instinctually knew that those things were related to each other in some way. And that I think I always knew that Part of why my grandmother was really frustrated by my grandfather inventing these memories or talking about things that sort of happened this way but didn't happen was this sense that when a person is doing that, no matter who you are, it makes you feel as though they the life that you lived with them sort of like wasn't enough and that they wanted something else because if they really had been happy, they would remember everything correctly. And of course that's not, I don't think that's actually the case because it's really just about the pathology of what's happening in their brain and they're forgetting these things. And it does, and it's not necessarily a judgment on the life that you've shared together. But I know that my grandmother, I think, took it that way. And so I, I had all of that in my mind. And then also was thinking about the fact that in the case of Frank and Wendell, there were these very clear, obvious things that they had given up in order to live together happily, you know, mostly happily, I think, in the novel. And I think it was important for me as it was ending for there to be a kind of reckoning with those things, for the for them to have a chance to face what it is that they gave up in this life together and what it is that they had in the life together. And that the memories then, because of what I knew about how they had made my grandmother feel and the kind of insecurities they can create, it seemed to me that that was the the sort of one of the ways in which they would have to reckon with what they had sacrificed. And again, that wasn't something that I thought about from the beginning. I just, for especially in the first draft, I just had, I, I was mostly just riffing on all of the things that my grandfather had talked about when he was kind of making memories up. Um, and then it kind of emerged from that process. Gotcha. Yeah, I kind of want to continue down that trail. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the dichotomy be dichotomy between Frank and Wendell. Uh, in an interview with the North Carolina Literary Review, you talk about taxidermy and how that prepares Wendell to be isolated as opposed to Frank, who enjoys being more social. So we see that a little bit during the funeral scene, how Frank does enjoy that social aspect, but he's willing to give it up for Wendell. Can you talk a little bit about the dichotomy there? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that in their relationship is probably something that they really struggled with. And in, in that I do think that Wendell is just constitutionally more 
equipped and more uh, more equipped and just enjoys isolation more because I do think that as a taxidermist um taxidermy it, while certainly like people have varying levels of comfort with taxidermy um I do think that it's something that a lot of people sort of look at askance and aren't typically going to be like hanging around in the taxidermy shop trying to chat with the guy who is stuffing their deer or whatever animal <laughs> it may be and so I think that Wendell because of the nature of his profession but also I just think more his personality is more of a solitary person and he has he is also detached and isolated from himself from his family much earlier than Frank has. And, and I think like that experience too has already made him used to being alone. And so I think that the experiences that they have of isolation come much more naturally to Wendell than they do to Frank. And I think that's also why then Wendell feels the type of guilt for the life that they've led together, because he knows that Frank was in fact a more gregarious social person and probably would have in, would have wanted to continue being close to his family and to have friends. And that the things that Frank gave up to be in this relationship with Wendell are essentially things that Wendell had already given up just on his own. And I think that's one of the, the things that he, that Wendell at least feels a lot of insecurity and doubt and guilt about. Kind of touching on that, uh, I don't remember, I could be misremembering, there's not a scene where Wendell disconnects from his family. It's kind of just implied, correct? Correct. There was actually, so I I ended up taking all of that out of the novel. In earlier drafts, I wrote way more about Wendell's family. Um, There were even some early drafts where I thought maybe like Wendell would take Frank to meet his parents under the guise of just being friends. I went through all kinds of different drafts to to sort of see what made sense in terms of Wendell's relationship with his family. And then as I kept on writing, I, because part for me, a lot of writing is a process of discovery. And, And when I start out, I know a certain amount about the characters. And then as I write, I, I learn much more about them and then have to, go back and revise some of the, not extraneous, right, but some of the the other parts of the story in order to make those line up with what I've learned about the characters. And so as I was writing, I think it was probably like the third draft was the draft when I realized that Wendell, because of his sexuality, because also of just his sense of being a more isolated, not a more isolated person, but his sense of just being different from his family and from a lot of people around him would have cut things off pretty early. And despite, I think, him knowing that that was best for himself, that it would also have been extremely painful for him. And that's why also, because he's the narrator, it seemed to me that he actually wouldn't talk about it at all. Mm. They're, they're part of part of like working with a first person narrator, especially like Wendell, was figuring out like what will he tell me and what will he what does it, would he not talk about, even sort of in the the sort of fictional world of narration. And so I ended up just cutting out like almost everything that had to do with his parents beyond just a few mentions of them in in sort of like long flashback passages, um, because it seemed to me that removing them completely from the narrative was actually the best way to create the sense of absence that he has felt over these years while and and also maintaining the integrity of his narration which seemed to me 
that he wouldn't want to ever talk about them because it would simply be too painful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I really appreciate you clearing that up because that's something that we've kind of discussed in the North Carolina literature class a good bit. And we didn't really have an answer for why it's been kept intentionally ambiguous. But yeah, that definitely clears it up. Um, So I do want to talk a little bit about your revision process because you mentioned a couple times how you go through multiple revisions. And of all the authors that we've had the opportunity to talk to, you seem to be one of the more strenuous revisers. Um, (laughs) So I just want to start by uh, asking, when did you start writing Hyde? And did you know that the book that you ended up with was always going to be the story that was being told? I started writing Hyde in... I think it was January of 2011 and the entire writing process took me about three years, but I wrote the first draft of that book in three months. And so I just like sat down every day in my office, wrote whatever came to me um, and really made it through the first pass of it in in three months and then spent what the next two years and nine months revising it and so definitely wow. in, in terms of being a thorough reviser i think you right you can probably see from that that the the sort of initial generation of material all happened pretty quickly and then much more of the time then was spent reworking it and revising it and of course during the the revising process too i was also constantly generating more new material um but i always sort of had that initial uh draft to work with and so i would say that overall the book that i ended up with really was i think the book that i started out trying to write just, but only in like the broadest terms. Like I knew when I started out that I wanted it to be both about um, the lives that these two men had lived together, as well as the end of their lives as Frank was suffering from dementia. Um, and so like all of that, I think I, I knew was the heart of the novel. And I think that really stayed intact from the first draft through the final draft. However, a lot of the details of that changed pretty drastically. So, you know, we were just talking about the role that Wendell's parents played and and the way that changed. Another thing that changed a lot was that for many of the drafts of the novel, I mean, I think probably into the third draft, I thought that Frank was actually going to be a high school history teacher. And Mm that was partially stuff that I was drawing from my grandparents. Cause it was one of the, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of what I was doing here was just like, anytime I needed details about these characters, I was just stealing things from my grandparents' lives. Um, (laughs) And, and that was sort of the initial pass. And then as I kept on working, all of this stuff with like Frank teaching at a high school just started to not make sense to me. And it felt off somehow. And then what I realized on sort of the third pass was that Frank is so fearful of being discovered that even if he had wanted to be a high school history teacher, which I think probably he did, he wouldn't have actually done it because it would have opened up too many opportunities for discovery. Because Mm. when you're working in a high school, and I know this because both my, like my dad was a high school teacher, my grandparents were high school teachers. um, And when you're, when you're in the high school, you know, you have relationships with an entire vast community of people. And that vast community of people is going to want to know like, aren't you married? Especially in like the 1950s, uh, an unmarried man was someone that people looked at quite askance. And so he, that it would have been a major question. And so as I was working on the third draft, I just realized that he would never have 
taken that job simply out of the fear of discovery. And so that was then in that third draft that I pivoted and sort of realized that he would instead have taken a job where he could sort of just go in, do his job, go home without having to develop relationships with people, which is how he ended up working in the denim plant. And so although like overall, I think the the trajectory of the novel and of Frank and Wendell's lives was what I imagined it to be at the beginning, a lot of those details really drastically changed as I went along. Gotcha. Another one of those details that I wanted to touch on, I don't think you can talk about Hyde without talking about poor Daisy. <laughs> so, uh, in the interview with the North Carolina book watch, you described Daisy as a watermelon with legs. I thought that that was a very funny encapsulation of this dog. Why'd you kill her? <laughs> uh, so I tried desperately not to kill the dog. A few mm. things happened here. Um, I would, you know, I was just talking a minute ago about when I was writing the first draft of the book, I really didn't plan anything out. Although I sort of knew the overall arc of the the narrative, I didn't write anything in sequential order. I would just go up to my office every day and sort of, I had like bulletin boards with scraps of things, images, lines on it that I was interested in. And then I would just kind of stare at those things until something came to me and I would write it um, and try to sort of, I work really hard, especially on a first draft to, if I'm writing a scene or a passage to write it all the way through when I'm, once I've started it, because I, I find that it's really hard to recapture the sort of initial energy and impulse behind any given moment, like the next day. And so I would try not to sort of like start a scene and then stop and then come back and finish it later. I would always try to see it through in that first session. And so I initially was just writing a passage about Frank going out and mowing the yard when Wendell knew very clearly that Frank shouldn't be mowing the yard because his heart could give out at any moment. And and all of that was really based on my grandparents, my grandfathers who can, especially my mom's dad who continued trying to like work in the yard and do all the things that he had done earlier in his life after his health started to fail him. Um, and, and everyone's concern about his, his desire to like keep working in the garden, um, when he didn't need, like need to be exerting himself. And so I was, I was just like writing that scene. And then as I was writing it, like, and, and I can't remember, I think in the initial draft, maybe when I was writing it, like Wendell went out to tell Frank not to, mow the yard and then daisy got out the door as he was doing as he, wendell went outside in order to tell frank to stop and then as i was writing that scene with frank mowing the lawn and daisy being outside i was just like oh no the dogs gonna get killed <laughs> and it wasn't something that i had planned and in fact i hate it when dogs get killed in in any literature because i love dogs and i don't want, want anything bad to happen to them and i also think that killing an animal is often like a real cheap shot in generating emotion for an audience and I didn't want to do that. But it, in the moment when it happened, it just it was one of those things where it was just like, oh, this is what occurs here now and I it doesn't feel like something that I'm in control of. I think as I kept on working on it too, it to me felt really indicative of the catastrophic things that happen when people who are suffering from dementia try to continue doing the things that they had previously done. Um, and lots of horrible catastrophes happen when people with dementia, especially are living alone by themselves. And so it seemed also appropriate in that way. I then later 
tried to take it out of the book because I just coincidentally, I was working on, I think again, this was sort of the third draft of the book, um, which is really the, the third draft is really where I was trying to like tighten everything down, figure out what actually needed to be in there and what should go figure out the structure. And it just happened that at the time that I was about to work on that portion of the novel, my very beloved dog had died of lymphoma. I mean, just like two weeks before, and I was brokenhearted. And I just couldn't bear to have Daisy die in the book after having gone through that experience of losing my own dog. And so I, as I was working on the end of the novel, I actually completely took that part out. And I made it so that Daisy lived and got to be happy. Um, but when I took that out the rest of the novel just didn't work and I couldn't figure out for a long time why it wasn't working. I just knew that something really important was missing from those final chapters. And ultimately what I realized as I was trying to save her was that Daisy's death, I think was really crucial for the end of the novel to face the physical reality of Frank's impending death. Mm -hmm which is a given by the time that the novel is ending. We know it's about to happen. And it because we know it's about to ha happen, it actually felt really cruel to me to sort of make Wendell and the reader go through it. And so in certain ways, I think Daisy's death is a stand-in for Frank's impending death, which forces both Wendell and then hopefully the reader to, to really look at the, the material reality of what death is, which of course is something Wendell has done his entire life, but it's very different when it's someone that you love deeply. And, and so I think losing Daisy in that way, and then Wendell's also Wendell's response to Daisy dying in which he then tries to preserve her body the way he's always done through taxidermy, I think is also then this sort of final expression of this instinct that he has felt throughout the entire novel, which is try to hold on to Frank and do anything he can to, to keep Frank alive and healthy and close to what Frank has always been when that is in fact impossible. And so I think for all those reasons, even though I didn't want poor Daisy to die, I realized that she had to in order for the end of the novel to work. Mm. So kind of speaking on the topic of you adding innocent deaths and revision, um, I want to talk about Debbie Drowner a little bit because that's one of the parts that I found uh, to me was one of the most interesting aspects of the novel. True crime as a genre has kind of exploded in popular culture. Even in 2016, it was still on the come up. Uh, but I wanted to talk about her significance as Amir to Wendell. Uh, what was Debbie Drowner based on and when did her story come along in your revision process? So Debbie Drowner was actually like one of the original threads of the novel. And oh, okay. Debbie Drowner, um, such a crass um, nickname. It's a nickname, I should say, that you know, <laughs> in the book the media has given her, um, which seemed to me indicative of the crass way in which our media talks about lots of, um, lots of murders. But that, so that case is based on the Casey Anthony trial, which was happening. I can't remember the exact dates of the case, the actual trial of Casey Anthony anymore, but it was very much in the news in the years when I was leading up to and working on Hyde. And so it was sort of in the forefront of my mind. And so that was one of the things that I knew was going to be present in the novel from the beginning 
I think partially just because I am interested in true crime um, and have been interested in true crime for a long time, long before it became socially acceptable to talk about. Um, (laughs) I remember being in college and like staying up really late reading about serial killers on the internet and then my friends being like, are you okay? And so... (laughs) Partially, I mean, with any, I think, piece of fiction that I'm writing, part of what's happening is like, I'm just writing about the things that interest me, and I don't know how they relate, but I figure they will in some way. And then in that case, particularly, or not that case, particularly, but within the narrative of Hyde, I was also extremely aware of the ways in which my grandparents, who I thought are probably like pretty indicative of their generation more broadly loved courtroom television. Like my parent, my grandparents loved judge Judy. They loved having court TV on. Um, and so also like that was in the back of my head too, that there's just something. And, and I don't know what it is about that generation or if it's just like old people in general want to see like justice done. Um, <laughs> but I think that was also just part of the initial material that I was working on in the novel was knowing that, my grandparents and I think a lot of old people spend a lot of time at home with the TV on as their company. And that for, for my grandparents in particular, a lot of it was courtroom television. And so all of that I was just kind of playing around with in those early drafts. And I was somewhat interested in just getting to play around with the the absurdity with which the media treats those those cases, which are, of course, horribly tragic, but they turn into these kind of sensational, ridiculous, like Nancy Grace, Jerry Springer television spectacles that really erase the humanity from what has happened there. And so I I was just interested in all those things in a way that I couldn't predict would actually connect with any of the other things that were happening in the novel. It's just for a long time, it seemed like it was just going to be part of the background. And then as I kept working and I was thinking too about what would actually lead a mother to murder her young child. And I was thinking, although sort of the Casey Anthony trial was the most immediate inspiration there. I was also thinking of other cases in which mothers have murdered their own children. The Susan Smith case was an enormous one when I was a kid. Um, And I was, when I was in college, actually, I was really, um, there was a set of poems by the poet Cornelius Eady that were written from the point of view of the black man that Susan Smith invented in order to blame for the murder of her children. And that, that series of poems really stuck with me. And so I was just also thinking about like what would lead a mother to actually murder her children. Um, and I think like through that, obviously different, different people are going to have different motivations for doing horrible things. But I, it did just occur to me that in thinking about a young mother who's alone taking care of a child in poverty, that the, the extreme difficulty of that situation and of trying to take care of this other living human being that you're not really equipped to take care of was in fact, in many ways, quite similar to Wendell's experience of trying to take care of Frank. And that although through much of the novel, he is extremely judgmental um, of Debbie Drowner and assuming her guilt and thinking the worst of her, that at a certain point, he does almost, un- he does, I think, understand why she may have done what she's done, because he too just feels so overwhelmed by taking care of Frank. But again, that's not something I knew from the beginning. It's something that I sort of discovered as I continued working on the book. 
Yeah, at times it kind of seems like Wendell might snap on Frank as Debbie Drowner did. Did that thought ever occur to your head? No, the 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 idea of Wendell sort of ever actually snapping on Frank never occurred to me because I think everything Wendell is doing in the book even when it seems like sometimes cruel, like when he puts locks on the, on the door to like keep Frank inside, everything he's doing is actually to try to take care of Frank and to keep Frank alive because he loves him so desperately. And in fact, really like Frank is the only Frank and Daisy too, but Frank is really the only thing in the world that Wendell loves at this point, everything and everyone else is gone. Um, And so all of those things in the novel that seem, I think, as though Wendell might actually like snap and hurt Frank are actually just expressions of not great expressions, but expressions of Wendell's deep love for Frank and deep, deep terror at the prospect of losing him. But at the same time, of course, I think he does because he he does feel so overwhelmed, even though he would never actually do anything to, to hurt Frank. I think he understands why a person might in similar mm-hmm. circumstances. Gotcha. The last thing that I kind of want to touch on about the novel specifically, I want to talk about the fruitcake wrappers. Was that something that you saw experienced like with someone else or where did that come from? So the fruitcake wrappers, I'm trying to remember now I'm to, to make sure that, that my memory is correct. The fruitcake wrappers themselves did not come from anything specific that I remember from my grandfather's dementia, but the fruitcake did because my grandfather loved fruitcake. And especially like near the end of his life when he, he wouldn't eat consistently was one of the things he only ever wanted to eat was fruitcake. And I remember that this also drove my grandmother up the wall because again, my grandmother was a great cook. She loved cooking for her family. <laughs> she could make like a great pineapple upside down cake. All, like all of these fantastic baked goods she could produce. And the thing that my grandfather wanted was <laughs> just these like store-bought fruitcakes. Um, and, and I remember it like drove her up the wall. And so Mo, like where it started was just sort of like me knowing that like he was constantly going to be walking around the house eating a fruit cake, and then I think from there, just him stuffing the the fruit cakes everywhere. I think that or the fruit cake wrappers everywhere. I think did come from maybe just some other general experiences I'd had with other people's family members experiencing dementia who would hide things. My mm. husband's stepmother actually, I remember brought a bunch of sand dollars home from the beach and then like hid them all in the refrigerator. I think because like at that point she thought that like she was maybe going to eat them. And so I think there was something about like taking these things and hiding them in different places that I had gleaned from other people's stories of their relatives with dementia. Um, But not that exact part didn't come from any um, specific personal experience that I had had. Gotcha. I just thought that was one of the more unique and interesting little bits. Like I've, I've too have experienced living with someone with dementia and that is absolutely something that she would have done. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was yeah. interesting. Yeah. I think I knew it was something that a person with dementia would do just from like research and things like that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, the last question I have for you as a writer, before we get into the book of questions is I just I want to hear about what's next. We got a little glimpse in our class discussion about a little bit of televangelism. I just I want to hear more about it. 
<laughs> yeah, I tend not to, I won't say too much in, in detail because when I am working on new material, the more I talk about it, the more it sort of like crystallizes in my brain and sort of gets set. And when I'm still in the early stages of work, I need for it to not feel crystallized and set in my brain so that it can change and evolve in the way that it needs to. Um, and I, at this point, I'm, it's sort of like the beginning of the third draft. So I mostly know what's going on, but there's, I still have a lot of stuff to figure out. But it is, I'm, the, the broad strokes are that I'm working on a novel about a family of televangelists, primarily in the 1980s. Um, Obviously, North Carolina has a, a long history of televangelism, especially with Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, whose uh, Heritage USA was centered in Charlotte. So that is part of the inspiration, although none of this is sort of a direct. It's not like the Tammy Faye biopic that came out a year or two ago. It's all um, <laughs> highly fictionalized and only sort of like partially in, inspired by the two of them. Um, and so I'm working on that. It's a much bigger novel than Hyde was because... At this point, there's two narrators. There could be more narrators by the time I'm done. I don't know. Um, and so there's, a, I think, just a lot. There's many more characters, too, because Hyde, by its nature, was pretty cloistered and really only about these two characters because then the world of these televangelists is peopled with way more people. There's more characters. There's more going on. Um, and so it will certainly, I think, end up being a longer and bigger book than Hyde was, uh, which is also, I think, part of why it's taking me a really long time to write <laughs> Well, I certainly cannot wait. That sounds right up my alley of the kind of book I would like to read. Well, good. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, I am going to ask a question from Dr. Gregory Scott's The Book of Questions. Today, we are going to turn to page 187. Let me read it and make sure it's not too dark to end on. Okay, we're good. Would you rather spend a month on vacation with your parents or put in four weeks of uncompensated overtime at work? Oh, definitely go on uh, four weeks of vacation with my parents, for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I like my parents. I get along with my parents. And so I would always much rather go on vacation with my parents than have to do more work, for sure. Even if you were, like, restricted to you have to be in the room with them at all times? Oh, I mean, be, having to be trapped in a room with someone at all times m would be more difficult for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was imagining just sort of like, we're at the beach for a month. <laughs> if, if I'm actually just trapped in a room, I don't know. I think I would still rather be, be in a room with my parents for a month than have to just like work overtime all the time. It's yeah. <laughs> a good answer. I would probably do the same thing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Griffin. I appreciate it so much. You have helped me do my final project and avoid another paper, which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It's been a blast getting to talk to you. Awesome. So uh, thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. I appreciate the ears and the audience. You can find uh, Mr. Griffin. Do you want to put out any social media platforms where people can find you at? Oh, I basically don't use social media at all anymore. I do have, a, a, my Twitter is Maddie Griff. My Instagram is it's Maddie, 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 Maddie. Um, but probably if, the, if anyone wants actual updates, my website is probably the best place to go just because I tend not to really actually use my social media accounts in any way. And my website is MatthewGriffinWriter.com. 
Gotcha. Well, cool. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. And we'll see you next time on the Small World Podcast. Thank you.